within a few short months, three months namely, they could no longer, they hid this baby once he was born, but they hid him for three months. Within a very short time, within a three month period, they could no longer hide him. And actually the manager explained to us what happened was as follows. Yochevit gave birth prematurely. She gave birth after six months. The midstream were counting. When Amram took back his wife, it was public knowledge. It was very well known and very clearly noted that the Goladar, meaning the midstream, were, were very, very much looking to kill all the Jews. They saw this person, the Goladar, separate from his wife. They also were aware that he took her back, and they began counting from the day he took her back, expecting potentially a child. What's unique is the fact that, keep in mind, Amram was an old man. Yocheva was a young old woman, but they still began counting from that point. When she gave birth at six months, the Mitzvah did not yet anticipate that there would be a child, because it was pre the nine-month gestation period. After an additional three months, once nine months had passed, the Mitzvah began hunting amongst the houses of the Jews to find if there were children. The Medrash also tells us that they had a very interesting way of doing it. They would take a baby, when the Mitzvah would go to the house of the Jews, they would take a Mitri child with them, and how do you hunt for a baby? Maybe the baby's hidden. What they would do is they would pinch the Egyptian baby, the baby would cry, and apparently it's the nature of one baby when it hears another baby also to cry. So if in that house was a Jewish baby, the Jewish baby would hear the Mitri baby, the Jewish baby would cry, the Mitri would take that baby and kill that child. My friends, it's important to note that this was literally Nazi type of activities. This wasn't, you know, we look back at Egypt, well, it was Pharaoh and enslavement. It was literally murder, infanticide. They would kill babies literally at the mother's breast, and they were vicious, horrible people. At this point, Yochevet sees that there's no way she could hide him anymore because within a few short minutes or days, the Mitzvahim are going to come and hunt him out. So what she did was Vatikah Lotevas Goma. She took a reed basket, she coated it on the inside with a type of a type of lime, on the outside with a type of tar or pitch. She placed the child in this basket, and she placed this basket in the suf, which refers to the Yam Suf, which refers to the to the to sea, or on the edge of the on the edge of the Nile. I'm sorry, I, it's not the it's not the Yamsuf, but it's actually the Nile River because the Pesach says Yaor, which always refers to Stam Yaor, refers to Nile. She put it in the reeds, which was by the Nile. Now, the Medrash wants to know why did she choose of all methods to put the child in a basket in the Nile River? We know that many times the Jewish children in this generation were were trying, they, the Egyptians were trying to kill them. Typically, what the Jewish people would do would bring them out to the fields, and apparently, with many, many Nisim involved, the children were able to exist in the fields alone. Yet, that's not what Yochevet did. And the reason why she didn't, the Medrash tells us, is because apparently Amram was aware of the astrologers' prediction. The astrologers had seen that the Moshiach, the salvation, the savior of the Jewish nation, was born. They also apparently saw that he was to be destroyed by water. And they predicted that that Moshiach Yisrael, who was born, they told Pharaoh was born, what the only way to destroy him is by drowning him by water. So what your Amram's plan was, put him in the Yamsuf. Somehow the astrologers would see that he's in the Yam, and they would see that in fact 
he was killed. Now, the reality is the astrologers were correct. And it was true that the only way to, to destroy the, this person, the Savior Yisrael, was by water. But in fact, that refers to the main Meriva. Later on, Moshe hit the rock, and that was what they were viewing. In any case, that's what Amram did. He told Yochavit, place the baby in the Nile. Once they did that, the astrologers told Paro, you don't have to worry, he's been drowned. And apparently they were very accurate in their being able to read the kochos, the various forces in the world, and they reported back to Paro not to, wait, not to worry any longer. What happened next was, His sister stood far away, to know what would be done with him. Remember, Miriam was in Avia. She had prophecy that her brother was to save the Klai Yisrael, and she stood waiting because she knew that something unique, something miraculous was about to occur, so she stood far away to see what would happen with this baby. But Tered Bas Paro, the daughter of Paro, went down, to wash by the river, and her Naros, her, her maidservants, went with her on the side of the river, Vateresateva, she saw the teva, she saw this little ark, betochasuf within the reeds, vatishlachetamosa, she sent out her arm, vatikacha, and she took her. Now, what's interesting to note is that Bas Paro was apparently a very righteous person. It is a machlokas as to what exactly she was going down to the river to do. The Balatorim says that she was going down to be miskayeres, she was going to convert. Not only had she rejected the Avadazara that her father Paro served, according to Balaturim, she actually became a complete Balashuva, a, a Gioris, and she went down to fulfill the mikvah part of, of the Gioris process. She comes down to the river with her Na'aras, with her maidservants. Now apparently, she saw this basket in the Yaor. Her maidservants also saw the basket in the Yaor, and a maidservant said to her, what are you doing? She began walking close to the basket. They said, what are you doing? She said, well, there's a basket, there's a baby in the basket. They said, don't you know that that's a Jewish baby? Don't you know your father decreed to kill every Jewish child? What are you doing? She opens up the basket and she sees a beautiful child in the basket. Now, the Pesach before doesn't clearly tell us what happened. But the Medrash tells us actually what happened was her Na'aros told her, if you're going to save that child, your father will find out about it and likely kill you. At which point the Medrash tells us that Gabriel Hamalach came and pushed them into the dirt that they shouldn't speak. In other words, he wiped them out because I don't know if she would have resisted. In any case, Batishlach HaSamosa, she sent out her maidservants, Rabbi Seinu, the Rabbanim Darshan, that means not her maidservant, but Amosa means her arm, it's singular. Her arm stretched out. Now again, it's not clear, every time Chazal bring an expression, is it literal or is it expressive, but it seems, it's normally assumed that she literally reached out and brought in the child. But Tiftach, she opened the basket, but Tireu, she saw him, Esayeled, the child, Vehine nar bocha, a nar, now the expression nar refers to a young lad. Moshe Rabbeinu at this point in time is three months old, not a nar, a nar would refer to someone who's 12 years old or somewhere in that range, he's now three months old. Vehine nar bocha, a nar is crying, vatachmol alav, she had rachmonish, she had mercy upon him, vatomer, she said, miyaldeya ivrim zed, this is from the Jewish children. Now, the Pasuk tells us she opened the lid and saw the Medrash tells us what did she see. 
The Medrash tells us she saw the Shekhinah. But remember, this child was unique. Not only was he born without Saleda, not only was he born to a woman who couldn't have children, not only was he born and were, he was born with Brismila, there was a light that shined from this child. Vatirayu says the Medrash refers to the fact that she saw the Shekhinah. He had a uniquely mature voice. He was from the moment of birth an unusual child, and he had the voice of a nar, of a young lad, of a 12-year-old, not a little baby, and he was beautiful, magnificent, beautiful. Vatachmalav, she had mercy, and she said, this is from the Jewish children. Vatomer Achoso, her sister said, Albas Paro, to the daughter of Paro, Ha'elech Vakrasilach Isha Minekesh, that I go call a nursewoman, Mineirios, from the Jewish women, who will nurse for you this child. Now the Medrash tells us actually what's going on here is that Basparo brought this baby to all of the Minekeses, to the various nursemaids of Mitzrayim. There were in the time of the, in the time of the Chumash, there were no such thing as Similac. If a woman was incapable of feeding a child, what she would do is hire another woman who recently had a child who would keep her milk flowing and that nursemaid would actually fill, would fill the role of the mother. Basparo took this beautiful baby to all the various nursemaids and the baby would not take from any of the women. He would not nurse. Now we're told that the reason why he wouldn't nurse is because later on he, this baby, was to become Moshe Rabbeinu to speak with the Shekhinah and it wouldn't be appropriate that he should manic, she should nurse from an Egyptian woman and therefore he would not take. She, meaning Miriam, stuck around during this entire proceedings and says to Basparo, would you like me to find a Jewish woman? Maybe he won't take because it's a foreign body. It's a different race. It's strange to him. Let me find a Jewish woman. As you know that this baby is Jewish, maybe then he'll take. Vatomela Basparo, Basparo said to her, said to Miriam, Lechi, go. Vatelecha Alma, the Alma went. Now this is a very unusual expression. It's important to know this expression, gentlemen because this expression will save you from a lot of confusion when people try to bring an indication that Jesus was born uh, in an unusual way. There's an expression in Yeshaya that says that the Alma gave birth. The Christian revisionists who revised the Bible to their wishes try to say that proves that Mary gave birth as a virgin. Because the verse says, Ha'alma, the, which they translate as virgin. The virgin gave birth. Oh, you see, that must be referring to Yesha, even though there's no expression, no mention of Jesus there. But you see that there's a virgin birth mentioned in the Bible. You see that Jesus was born through immaculate conception. It must have been God with, with Mary, etc. Very nice. The problem is that if you study Chumash, even on a superficial level, you'll notice the Pasuk over here used the word Alma. And it does not mean virgin. It is not the expression. Basula is the expression for virgin. The word Alma actually means young maiden. That's what the ex- expression refers to. Alma. And here, it's, it's very important to remember this Pasuk, in Shemos Bey's Pasuk that the word Alma refers to a maiden. In any case, Miriam went, Vatikres Eimayelet. She went and called the mother of the child. Remember, this is Miriam, the daughter of Yochebet. She runs back, Mom, guess what happened? The baby's been saved. And not only that, it's been taken to Paro's house. And not only that, the baby won't drink from any of the Egyptian nursemaids. Paro told me to go find a Jewish woman to nurse her. Mom, come. Vatomalabat Paro. Basparo said, Miriam, 
brought his, her mother Yochevet. Basparo gave the baby to Yochevet. Helichi, Esayela, take this child, Vinikuli, and nurse him for me. Rashi says, Basparo was misnava v'loyada mashinisnava. She was, she prophesied and she didn't know what she prophesied. Oftentimes Hashem puts words into people's mouth and they don't appreciate the wisdom which they say. The word helichi actually means helich lichi. Take it, it's yours. It's your child, take it. She didn't know that. She did not know that Yochevet was actually the birth mother. She only knew that Yochevet was a Jewish woman. She said, take the child, Venikuli, nurse him for me, and I will pay you your schar for this. The woman took the child and nursed him. The Gemara says, Hashem says, it's not enough that I gave you back your child, but I paid you also to nurse your child. Look, the Sadiqah might take care of you. In any case, this young child, who was very mature and very unique, was brought up by his mother, living in the house of Paro for 24 months. Tenikeyu, in the time, still, still to the time of the Gemara, the nursing period was 24 months. Which means he came to Das, he came to understanding, being educated by his mother. Even though he was brought up as an Egyptian prince, as the daughter of Paro, he was in fact brought up by his mother, and he was trained in being a mensch by his mother. Even though he was two years old when they separated, he was a unique child and very mature. At three months he already had a call of an hour. He was already learned and he was already wise enough to, to begin the, the, his education process. Vayigdal Hayeled, the child grew up, now he's 24 months old. But to be able to Basparo, she, Yocheved, brought the child to Basparo. Vayilalaben, and this child was to her a son. Vatikra Moshe, his name was called Moshe. Vatomer, she said, came in a Mayim Mishisuhu, because I saved him from the water. Now, the Medrash tells us that a lot of interesting things happened at this point. This young child, who is now the crown prince, was unique in not only his intelligence, but his physical beauty. The Medrash tells us that whoever would look at this child could not stop looking. He was so beautiful and had such an aura around him that if one looked at him, you were just captivated by his physical beauty. Everyone was enamored with the young prince. Everyone loved him. And he would sit on Paro's lap. And we're all familiar with the famous Medrash, what had occurred at this time. At this point, one day while he's sitting on Paro's lap and Paro is playing with him, this is Paro's grandson and, and this is going to be the heir apparent. This is the person who Paro eventually is going to make the next king. At some point, the baby reaches up for Paro's crown, takes it off of Paro's head and puts it on his own head. The advisors who were all gathered around panicked because they said, wait a minute, don't we have an astrology that says that there's going to be someone who takes the crown off a paro. This baby is dangerous. This is the baby that's going to take your crown. You better kill it now. The Medrash tells us that gathered in amongst those advisors was a man called Yisro. And Yisro said, ah, stop, it's nonsense. What do you mean? It's a baby. It doesn't know the difference. It doesn't know. The other advisors said, no, kill him now. Be wise, paro. And there was a major debate amongst the wise men, Yistro said, listen, let's find a way, I'll show you, I'll prove to you that the baby doesn't recognize, and in fact we're familiar with the Medrash, the Medrash says, Yistro said, let's bring together two bowls, one bowl of paz of fine gold, 
one bowl, one bowl of hot coals. And I'll prove to you that the baby is just attracted to the glitter. The baby doesn't recognize gold as valuable. The gold crown just glittered and the baby saw the glitter, so the baby reached for the glitter. And I'll prove it to you because you'll see, you put the two bowls and the baby will reach for the hot coals because they glow more brightly than does the gold. In fact, Moshe Rabbeinu was very wise. And despite his young age, he immediately reached for the gold. However, the Malach came and pushed his hand, at which point he took the coal, put it to his mouth, and burnt his tongue, and he was, for the rest of his life, Aurel Svasayim, of uncircumcised lips, meaning he had a speech impediment. It was difficult for him to enunciate his words. We, we learn later on, the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu was supposed to be an Aurel Svasayim is that people should not say that he was, through as a great speaker, did he become the leader, because he was a very <coughs> convincing, charismatic person, he won the Jews over. Rather, it was the Emes of Torah, and Hashem wanted an Aurel Svasayim, a man who did not, was not capable of clear speech to be the actual leader. In any case, this child is being brought up in the, bas- in the house of Paro as the heir apparent, as the crown prince, beloved by Basha, the daughter of Paro, beloved by Paro, and accepted by all as the, as the next heir the next ruler of Mitzrayim. The Gemara tells us on this Pasuk that throughout his life, the only name in the Chumash that this man is called by is Moshe. The reason why he's only called Moshe is because of Karasatov. Since Basha is the one who saved him, Basha is the one who gave him the name Moshe, meaning Minamayim Mishisu, I saved him from the water, because of Akarasatov because of recognizing the good throughout the Torah, he's called by that name. Even though Moshe had ten names, Throughout the Torah, he's only called by the name Moshe because this was the name given to him by the one who saved him. It was in those days. Moshe Moshe grew up. And he went out to his brothers. Now, the time period between two years and now 20 years old, we're told nothing about the young man's life. He grows up. He grows up in the house of Paro. We're told nothing. We're told now at this point he's Vayigdal Moshe. He's grown to the next level. The first point was when he be, when he left the nursing, which was two. Now Vayigdal is the next stage of his development. He's now 20 years old. Vayetze El Achav. He goes out to his brothers. Now the Medrash tells us this is not the first time that he went out to his brothers. As a matter of fact, he was very instrumental in doing whatever he could to intercede on the Jewish people's behalf. He went to Paro and said, Paro, we're working these slaves too hard. If we're going to work them like this, we're not getting our mileage out of them. We're going to work them so hard, they're going to die. They're not going to be productive. Let's lighten their load. As a matter of fact, I think the wisest path is we should give them a day off. If we give them a day off, they'll rest and they'll be able to work better. It happens to be that Paro apparently was unaware of the guile, the, the sneakiness, I hate to use that expression, with which Moshe planned this, but Moshe instituted the day of Shabbos as a day of rest. During this time period, the Jewish people would not work on Shabbos because the crown prince interceded on their behalf and instituted the day of rest, the day of Shabbos. There were many things that during this time period, Moshe actually did for his brothers. So he was certainly aware, but apparently when he came of full das, when he was 20 years old and he came to his full cognition, full state, he went out to his brothers... The Pasuk tells us an event that happened. He went out to his brothers, he saw their oppression. Now again, many times before he went out, and many times he did what he could. In fact, the Medrash tells us, sometimes he did things that were not really smart. 
he went out and physically helped the Jewish people. He saw an old man carrying a, a load. He said, please, please, let me take it. Let me help you. He would switch loads to people who were stronger. He would do what he could. He said the words, Me'yitain Musil, I'd rather die than see this. He was crying over the oppression of his brothers. He was very aware that he was Jewish. Again, he was brought up by his mother as a Jew. He knew his relationship to his people and was very much aware. The Pasuk now is telling us one event during those many years and that was as follows. Vayar Ish Mitzri when he went out, when he was 20 years old, he saw an Egyptian man, Make Ish Ivri Me'achav, hitting one of his Jewish brethren. Now, the, the Torah, in its very abbreviated form, doesn't tell us what was actually transpiring. However, the Medrash does, and Rashi brings this, that was actually happening was as follows. In the time of this point, which is now 80 years before the Exodus, there was a system of command to keep the Jews doing what they should be doing. The system of command went as follows. Ten Jewish slaves were overseen by one Jewish shoter. One shoter for ten slaves. Ten shotrim, ten of the Jewish shotrim, were overseen by one Egyptian nogesh, taskmaster. So that was a system. Every hundred Jews, for every hundred Jews, there were ten shotrim. For those ten shotrim, there was one Egyptian nogesh. It happened to be that there was a woman of unique beauty at this time, whose name was Shlomis Bas Divri. This Egyptian taskmaster saw this woman and decided that he wanted to live with her. The only problem is she was a married woman. It happened to be she was married to one of the Jewish shotrim. As a matter of fact, that Jewish shoter happened to have been the brother of Dosan. This nogesh, one morning, each morning the nogshim would come to the shotrim to summon them to work. The Shotrim's job was then to leave their house and go wake up their ten respective Jews who were under them. This particular Nogesh, the Egyptian Nogesh, one morning, comes to the Shoter, comes to the Jewish person, wakes him up very early while it's still dark. And says, come on, come on, come on, let's go to work. We've got to work early because there's a big, big schedule today. The Shoter goes to his task to wake up his ten Jews, at which point this Egyptian Nogesh goes into the house. This woman, Shlomis Basdivri, thought it was her husband coming back. He lived with her. She didn't know it. Effectively, she was raped. The, when the Jewish shoter came back after waking up his ten Jewish people, he came back to his house, at which point the Egyptian had already left. He recognized, the Jewish man recognized what had transpired. And then that day, when he went out to work, apparently he looked at the Egyptian, knowing full well what the Egyptian had done to his wife, the Egyptian understood that he had been found out, and this Egyptian was now hitting him, was going to kill him. He was whipping him to kill him so that there would be no witnesses. Apparently, even though the Jews were slaves, raping a married woman was considered a crime. He didn't want to be found out. Moshe Rabbeinu comes out, sees the Egyptian man hitting the Jewish man, through Ruach HaKodesh understands what happened, that actually the Egyptian man had raped this man's wife and was trying to eradicate the evidence. Moshe looks this way and that way. He sees that there's no one who's going to come out of this Egyptian who's worthy of saving. also means he saw what had happened, what was done in the house, what was done now in the field. He saw no one was to come out of this. He hit the Mitzri and he hit him in the sand. We'll soon see that it's a machlok is how he killed him. The simplest way to learn is he said the shame of Maforosh and this Egyptian died. That's all the Pasuk tells us about what happened. 
the Pasuk then, again, in extremely abbreviated form, the Torah tells us, Moshe came out on a second day. Now again, Moshe had been going out for months, for years now. These two events, specifically the Torah is telling us, he went out on a second day. Two Jewish men were fighting. Moshe says to one man, Why are you hitting your friend? Now the Gemara learns out from here an interesting thing. These two people happen to have been Dosan and Aviram. Wherever you have trouble, you know that in the Midbar, you know that Dosan and Aviram were there. Who were the people left over from the Mon? Dosan and Aviram. Who were the people involved in the Machokas Korach? Dosan and Aviram. Wherever you had trouble, Dosan and Aviram were there. The Pasuk says that Moshe says, Russia, evil man, why are you hitting your friends? The Gemara says what they were actually involved in was mortal combat. They were going to kill one the other. Russia is because Dosan is standing over Aviram. Well, I'm not sure which one was which, was standing over his friend to kill him. The Gemara says from here you learn that if you, even if you don't actually succeed in killing, just you attempt your Russia. Why are you trying to kill Re'echa, the one who's wicked as you? Moshe recognized who these people were, but still, to kill a Jew, I have to stop this. And he stopped them from killing one the other. No sooner did he break up the fight, Vayomer, he said, Who made you a sar, a prince, and a judge upon us? Are you going to kill us, will you say? As you killed the mystery. Vayira, Moshe, Moshe was afraid. And Moshe said, now I know the matter. If you watch the Pasuk carefully, Moshe said the word, the the two Jews said, are you going to kill us with words as you killed the mystery yesterday? What they were saying to Moshe was, if you don't stop acting like you're some big shot, we're going to tell Paro about what you did. You killed the mystery yesterday. We were witnesses. We saw it and we're going to tell Paro about it. In fact, they did just that. The reason why it was again particularly evil was not only because Moshe had done something that was risky to his own life, not only did something that was proper and good, these two people were Dosan Vaviram, it was Dosan's sister who was a woman who was raped. It was her honor that he stood up for, and this guy himself, Dosan, goes to Paro to Mimalshin to tell about this Egyptian prince who in fact killed an Egyptian taskmaster. Vayishma Paro Sadova, Paro heard what had happened. Now what he heard was that there was a rebellion on his hand. If the crown prince intercedes on the behalf of the slaves, kills an Egyptian taskmaster because the Egyptian taskmaster was whipping a Jewish slave, that is a major problem. He tried to kill Moshe. He recognized how serious a problem it was. He attempted to kill Moshe. Now we're all familiar, the Medrash tells us that in fact a great nace happened. Not only did he try to kill Moshe, he tied Moshe up they brought Moshe out to be executed and this was a major court event when the crown prince is to be executed there were crowds gathered an entire affair and Hashem made various nisim the sword that went to cut Moshe's neck could not penetrate his neck turned hard like marble the guards, some of the guards became blind some became deaf in any case through miraculous events Moshe escaped Vayivrach Moshe Mibnei Paro Moshe escaped from Paro and we're told later when Moshe didn't want to go to Paro, and he was saying, "Ani aros v'sayim, I am of uncircumcised lips, I can't speak clearly." Hashem said, "Misam chapel Adam, who gave a mouth to Adam? Misam ilim mecherish, who made a man deaf? 
who made him blind, referring back to the event many years earlier when Hashem made these people blind and deaf, the guards who were there at the attempted killing, execution of Moshe. Vayeshev Eretz Midian, Moshe sat in the land of Midian, Vayeshev al he sat on the Be'er. Now it's very important to note that Moshe went to Midian as a convict, an escaped convict. He ended up by the house of Yisro, who was one of the advisors of the king. To the Kohen of Midian were seven daughters. They came and they brought their, their flask. And they filled up all the trouts for the water. To give water to the son of the fathers. The Gemara asks if he's a Kohen Midian a very important person, an advisor to the king, why does he have his daughters doing the work of being shepherdesses? It's very unbecoming, very improper. Yomar tells us that in fact, he was no longer the coin Midian. He had given up his Avodah Zarah. For a long time, Yisro had recognized there was nothing to Avodah Zarah. He was going through the motions because he was the recognized priest. He was given covered. He at this stage had given up his Avodah Zarah. And he said he brought all of his various Avodah Zarah type of instruments out to the people and told them, I can no longer be a priest. At which point they excommunicated him. They said, if you're not going to be one of us, then no one will work for you, no one can be involved with you, and he had no one left to watch, watch his son other than his own daughters. So in fact, they were the ones who were taking out the son. By Avol Haroim, the shepherds came, by Yigashum, they kicked his daughters out. Not only did, was there a decree from the local people to have nothing to do with Yeruel, with Yisro, but they were actually torturing his daughters. In fact, Vayaka Moshe Vayushim, Moshe got up and saved them, there's a machokas in the Gemara, either they threw the daughters into the well, or they were trying to rape them. In any case, Moshe saved the daughters, the seven daughters, by Yashket Sonam, and he in fact gave their son to drink. Vatavona el Ruel, avihen the seven daughters came to Ruel, the father of Yomer, and he said, Maduo mehartem boyom, what are you doing here so quickly? Not only were they saved, but the work was done very quickly, and early in the day, they had come back with the sheep already watered. Vatamona, they said, Ish Mitzri Hitzalanam An Egyptian man saved us from the hands of the shepherd. Vigam Delanu, and he also watered first Vayash Kesasson, and he gave the son to drink. The Pasuk does not tell us that one of the messages that they were telling within that told Yisro with whom they were dealing. We know that whenever the Ovos went to a well, something unusual happened. The water would rise up to greet them. In fact, Yaakov Avinu effectively made Paro an Ovid of Adazara. When Yaakov Avinu gave Paro the bracha that the Nile should rise, from that moment on, any time that Paro went out to the Nile, the water would come out to, to greet him. That was because of the bracha that Yaakov gave. Apparently the others had a certain control. When the others would go to Be'er, the water would literally rise up. That's in fact what happened when, when Yitzhak it's in fact happened with, uh, with Yaakov by the bear. And in fact, when Moshe went to the bear, the water rose up. And this is what they told their father, that there was a rather unusual occurrence. Vayom el he said to his daughters, Vayo, where is he? Lama zezavtim ezish, why do you leave the man? Karen alo kolom lachem, let him eat bread. Says the Gemara, he was not saying let them eat bread. Maybe he'll marry one of you. He'll take you as a wife. Meaning Yisra was very interested in having Moshe as a son-in-law. Moshe acquiesced to sit with the man. And Sipora, his daughter, was given to Moshe. Now, Sipora was a Midjanit woman. Later on, we'll see this, and later on, Chumash, this became an issue.
But for many years, Moshe sat with his father-in-law in Midian. Moshe Rabbeinu ran away at the age of 20. He didn't come back to Paro until the age of 80. That means for 60 years, he stayed in Midian with his wife, Tzipporah. Vatelet Ben, they had a child, he called the name of the child Gershom, because I was a Ger in a foreign land. It was in those long days, the king of Mitzrayim died, and the Bnei Yisrael sighed from the hard work, and they screamed out, and their cries reached Hashem, because of the work. Now, there seems to be a number of expressions in this Pasuk that are unusual. The Bnei Yisrael sighed, and they cried out, and their cry reached Hashem from the Avodah. The Gemara tells us what actually was happening was that this Paro did not physically die. The Medrash tells us that this Paro had Saras, had leprosy. A man who has Saras is equivalent to dead. And his Khartoumim, his wise men, his sorcerers told him the only solution for this Saras is you have to bathe in the blood of human. But not only does it have to be human's blood, it's more effective if the blood is purer, and therefore you need baby's blood. The Gemara tells us that Paro would kill 150 babies in the morning to bathe in their blood in the morning. He would kill 150 babies at night to bathe in their blood. He couldn't use the stale blood from the morning, he needed fresh blood. And when the Bnei Yisrael heard this, by Yizaku, they cried out, because not just the hard work, not just because of the oppression, but the cruelty of literally killing human babies to bathe in their blood. By Hashem heard their oppression. By Hashem remembered its bris, as Avram, its Yitzhak, and Yaakov. By Yaralokim, and Hashem knew. Basically, there are three reasons given in the Pesach here, why Hashem listened to them. By Zaku, it's simply the cry of pain, without any reasoning. Just the fact that the Bnei Yisrael cry out in pain, whether they're deservant or not, is a reason for Hashem to listen. Number two, Nakasam Rashi tells us, refers to the, the tefillah of the Sadiqim, whilst much of the generation had already deteriorated, had already gone to various levels of Tumah, there were still Sadiqim in the generation, their tefillahs worked. And the third part, which is one of the primary focuses that actually led to redemption, is the bris that Hashem promised Avram Yitzhak Yaakov to redeem them and at this point we begin the series in the process of the redemption of the final Yitzhak Mitzrayim Paragimel opens up Moshe was watching the sheep of Yisro his father-in-law Kohen Midjan the priest of Midjan and he shepherded the sheep after the after the Desert and he came to Har Hashem in Choreva. He ended up by Har Sinai. Now the Medrash explains to us that a lot is going on here. We ended up a moment ago, <coughs> Moshe Rabbeinu left the house of Paro at 20 years of age when he ran away. He now comes to Midian at the age, we don't, the Pasuk doesn't tell us clearly when he comes there, but when he meets Hashem at the Sneh, he's 80 years old. So we have from 20 to 80 when we're told nothing about Moshe Rabbeinu. Now the Ramban is very clear that Moshe Rabbeinu during this time reached a level of what the Ramban calls Av B'chachma, father in wisdom. He became tremendously wise and he became a high-level Novi. As a matter of fact, we'll soon see, according to the Malbim, Moshe Rabbeinu was now at this point at the highest level of Nevuah, higher than any other Novi. Meaning during this time period from years 20 to years 80 of age, 
he continued growing in Yerushalayim and continued growing level after level. It's important to note that prior to Matan Torah, the growth of a person was different than it was after Matan Torah. We know that the Avos kept all of the mitzvahs, including the mitzvahs of the And one has the right to ask, where did they learn it from? There was no Torah, no written Torah. Where, where did no Torah Shabbat Peh, where did they know it from? So a lot of Mepharshim explain that basically a human being really, a Jewish soul, is capable of knowing what's correct and what's not correct. Meaning, if a person were able to push away all of his nagiyas, a person were able to just honestly reach down deep within themselves and ask themselves what is right, without any self-interest, without my own agenda, they would be able to come to a tremendous level of knowing Hashem and also a tremendous level of avodas Hashem. Because within me, there's a part of me that's that's a pure neshama that was under the Kisya covered, that knows exactly why I was created and what am I doing here and what, what my purpose is in this world. People on the level of Avram Avinu were able to eliminate their own bias, their own agenda, their own self-interest. They were able to reach deep within their neshama and just ask themselves that one question, what is right, what is proper, what does Hashem want? And they were able to serve Hashem that way. Additionally, they had special seat Hashemaya. Hashem revealed things to them. But basically, most of the work was done with, by self-introspection. In our situation now, even though that part, that capacity is there within a person, if a person were to try this system now, they end up crum as a pretzel because we would end up with our own biases, our own agendas. We'd end up writing a whole Torah different than what Hashem did. Therefore, Hashem gave us the Torah, gave us each of the mitzvahs, and gave us a particular Masorah and a way to perfect ourselves so that we don't find ourselves deep off the end of things in the wrong way. In any case, Moshe Benu reached this level of Av B'chokhmah on his own, obviously with special Siyat Shmaya, but in this stage he was, he was ready for, to meet Hashem Kaviyachol in, in a level that no other human being had before. Vayer Malach Hashem, a Malach Hashem appeared in Balavat Eish, within the flame of a fire, Mitocha Sneh, from within the Sneh, from within a burning bush, Vayar, and he saw, Vinei Sneh Bo'er Ba'eish, Moshe Menuh saw that the Sneh, the bush was burning, and the snare was not being consumed. He saw something very unusual. First of all, the Pasuk tells us he saw a malach. Now, a malach has the capacity to take on a physical manifestation. Rare is it that the malach will take on a full human form. Even though in the time of Avram we saw the malachim took on a full physical form, looking like a man, rarely is that the case. Often if a malach appears, it's in a form that a human can see, but not quite a dumus, not quite a physical form of a man. In any case, Moshe sees a malach, and he also sees this snare, this bush burning, and he sees something unusual, that the bush is not being consumed. Now, obviously, this is a, a rather unique nace, and this is a, there's something going on there. Vayomer Moshe, Asura Na, Moshe says, let me turn away, Vayeres Amara Godalazeh, let me see this great matter. Madua Layiva Sneh, why will the Sneh not burn? Now, it's important to note, Moshe Rabbeinu was very, very close to Hashem at this point. According to the Medrash, we know that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke with Hashem for seven days, during which Hashem asked Moshe to be the one to lead the Klai Yisrael out of Mitzrayim. According to the Medrash, for six days before Moshe Rabbeinu saw the snare, Hashem was pleading with Moshe to be the leader of the Klai Yisrael, and Moshe was refusing. So it's not like Moshe Rabbeinu just suddenly saw the snare, rather, this was after long conversations with Hashem, meeting with Hashem, and now he sees this Mare HaGadol. 
Now it's very important to make an observation here that people don't fully deal with. Typically in the Gentile world, if you ask a person, what is a Novi? So they'll think it's a regular person, a person like you or I, who gets lucky. God appears to him and all of a sudden he becomes a prophet, he has prophecies. The Rambam, the Rambam explains to us that Nevuah is actually a system of perfection via which a person purifies, purifies, purifies himself to the extent that his nefesh habahami, his physicality, no longer prevents him from seeing Hashem. He's able to cut through the layers of the physical part of his body till his neshama is able to, ex is able to experience Hashem clearly. Meaning, normally, the reason why it's difficult for me to daven, the reason why it's difficult for me to sense the presence of Hashem is because I am covered up with many layers of physicality. There's the nefesh abahami, there's the physical part of me that blocks and prevents me from ex experiencing Hashem, prevents me from sensing Hashem. The more a person works on their ruchnis, the more a person becomes kadosh, becomes holy, their chelik kimimal, that part of I that's pure neshama comes to the fore, the Nevej Bahami becomes weaker and weaker until I'm able to experience Hashem. Therefore, you'll hear stories of people sensing Hashem. We know in our own life, the more a person works on himself, the more they're able to dam with Kavanah, the more they're able to experience the Shabbos. Oftentimes, a Jew can feel Shabbos. And as many times you'll feel it, people sometimes during Lechadodi, sometimes people, especially women when they light candles, there's a certain sense, you can sense Shabbos, you can feel it. You can, it's almost palpable, you can almost feel it. A Novi was someone who worked on himself, who perfected himself to the extent that he had what we would call now an out-of-body experience, meaning it was almost like his neshama left his body, the eye separated from the body to an extent that he was able to experience Hashem in a very clear manner. All Nevi'im, all Nevi'im who experienced Nevuah went through a purification process, in fact, in Rambam tells us, many of them would spend a few days with, with kinor, with, with, a, with a harp and various music to make themselves happy and to miss bode. They'd have to contemplate, think of Hashem, and they'd reach a high spiritual plane during which they would experience Hashem and, so to speak, leave their body. Moshe Rabbeinu is on that level on a very regular basis. What's happening here is, the Malbim explains to us, that Moshe Rabbeinu is now going to reach a much higher level of nevuah that no man ever reached before. He was going to see Hashem Bas Baklara Hameira through a very clear vision. All Nevi'im, whenever they experience Hashem, always come back and speak with their Moshel, Bechida. They speak always in parables. The reason for that is, is because when the Neshama leaves the Guf, it has to then re-enter the Guf and everything gets mixed up and reinterpreted. Meaning, for instance, if you read Daniel or you'll read any of the Nevi'im, they saw Nevuah in a manner of a mushal v'chida, in a mystery, meaning their neshama was allowed to leave the guf, they were able to see something, then when they came back, it was their job to interpret what they saw. Depending on the level of Kedusha, they were able to interpret it clearly. Now, it's interesting to note that the Derech Hashem tells us that that is akin to a human being when he dreams. The reason why in Chazal, dreams are taken very seriously, we know that there's a concept of Tainus Chalom, if a person has a terrible dream, he'll fast. We know that there's a concept of being poter, dreams answering them up. Dreams are not irrelevant. Dreams are not silly things. Many dreams are silly, but there is a certain time when dreams are significant. The Derech Hashem explains to us that the reason why this is so is because when I go to sleep, there's a part of me that separates from my guf. 
part of me goes up to Shemayim and is allowed to see things and understand things in a very clear manner. What happens then is the eye, that part of the neshama, comes back into the guf, and because my guf is so impure, that image that I saw, now I have to think that through to get it into my concrete brain, and that's where things get all mixed up and all confused and all dream state in the sense that they no longer make sense. However, if an image is very, very clear, if you see a person dead, it may very well be that your neshama was allowed that night to go up to Shemayim, see something true, and for some reason you were allowed, even in your mixed up state, when you come back into your guf, you were able to see, see it, still see it, that image clearly, because that may well be a way Hashem is allowing you to know something. Therefore, dreams have a certain significance. Again, most of our dreams are not significant. Most often they're not taken very seriously, but there are times when they are to be taken seriously. The level of dream which is a regular person can have, a Novi reached a much, much higher level where he was able to almost at will leave his body, so to speak, let the Neshama leave and see things in a clear way, come back to his body and then interpret it. What Moshe Rabbeinu was Zohar to was a much higher level of Nevoah. Moshe Rabbeinu was the only human being ever who was able to see Hashem while still in his cognitive state. He didn't have to go into a dream state. Any Novi, the Rambam explains, when a Novi would see Nevoah, his body would start shaking, his arms would start moving, he'd start trembling, and you'd see a very frightening thing because he was experiencing an out-of-body experience. His Neshama, part of the Neshama, was leaving because he was not on the level of Kedusha to be able to remain in his body and still experience Hashem to the extent of Nevoah. Moshe Rabbeinu, however, was very different. Moshe Rabbeinu was able to see Hashem remaining in his guf, Moshe Rabbeinu did not tremble. Moshe Rabbeinu did not go through all the shakings. He would remain with absolute, total cognitive state in his full state and be able to speak to Hashem per el per. Meaning, if it could be speak as I speak to my friend, Moshe Rabbeinu was able to speak directly to Hashem. The reason was because his guf had become so purified, he had become so kaddish. Keep in mind, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was born, was born of a unique stature. He was born Mohol, the bias of Mali Ora we spoke out. The fact that he was obviously, as an Ashama, much more pure. And during his now 80 years of life, he experienced a much higher level of Kedusha and grew to the extent that now he was able to see Hashem. The first thing he sees is the Malach and the Sneh. He says the words, let me come closer, because now Moshe Rabbeinu understands that he's now, for the first time in his life, going to reach that highest level of Nevoah, where he's going to experience Hashem directly. Vayomer, Hashem says, Al tikrov halom, do not come close. Shal nalecha me'araglecha, take your shoes off your feet. Because the place that you're about to stand on is holy ground. Now, this concept of take your shoes off because it's holy ground is something that we see in the base of Megdish. You're not allowed to wear shoes. And it's something that the Malbim speaks out as a very, very interesting point. And that is as follows. The shoes do not necessarily mean the shoes themselves. Even though there's a luck that you must take off your shoes when you're in a very holy place, the reason for it, the Malbim says, is a little esoteric. The reason for it is, is because it symbolizes what a person is supposed to be doing there. The shoe is the part that you use when you're going to step on a dirty place. That's the part that protects your foot from a makamatuna, from a dirty place. So you're going to walk in the streets in, the, in various places. You, your shoes protect your feet from getting dirty. That is symbolic of the nefesh abahami, of the physicality of this world. 
the part of me that's pure is very very holy is put in his body and is exposed to various things the body should protect me from the from the dirt of the world <coughs> from the exposure to these things what the me- message here is shal take off your shoe because you are now preparing yourself to leave the limits of physicality now the reason why I want to speak this out particularly is because the Malman tells us a very a tremendous yesod which will help us understand something the Malman asks a question he says if you know by chalitza we know that chalitza involves taking the shoe off <coughs> when, a, when Reuven dies without children he falls to his brother Shimon Shimon will either do yibam which means he'll take that woman as a wife and have a child or he'll do chalitza the Malbim says, I don't understand Chalitza. Yibum, I understand. The Torah tells us the function of Yibum is to fulfill the brother's name. Meaning, Ruvain died without children. We want the, that Neshama to have a continuation in this world. He has no children. We want him to have some continuation. Shimon, take his wife and build for him a house. Make a house for him so he should have a continuation in this world. In some sense, it's almost like Ruvain has come back into the world to build his house to continue his name. However, the Mabim says, Chalitza is just an undoing of that, breaking the bond. Why do you need the taking off the shoe? What's that have to do with it? Says the Mabim, actually, that's symbolic of the same concept. What the Torah is saying to Shimon is, Shimon, you were given an opportunity to give a physica- physical existence to your brother the shoe referring to Nefesh of Bahami to the physical existence you didn't do that, you didn't allow your brother to put a neshama into this world, into the goof, take that shoe off as a symbolic sign that you did not accomplish what you're supposed to in any case, Moshe Rabbeinu was told that this is a Makam Kodesh and he's now invited to come up onto the Har HaMariah the Yomer, Hashem says I am the God of your father Avram Yitzhav and Yaakov Moshe immediately hid his face. Because he was afraid to look at Hashem. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu was able to look at Hashem and live, which is physically impossible, no man is capable of looking directly at Hashem and living because it becomes something, the human being short-circuits. The Kedusha, the intensity is too great, the human being short-circuits. Moshe Rabbeinu was on the level. However, out of tzniyas, out of respect for Hashem, out of covered. Moshe Bainu would not look at Hashem. Hashem now says to Moshe that I saw the, the oppression that my people have been suffering because of the, the Nogshav, because of Mitzrayim. I'm going to now come down, save them, and I'm going to take them to Eretz And I want you to be the person to save the Jewish nation. You, Moshe Rabbeinu, are supposed to be the one Shliach. And not only are you supposed to take the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim, you will take them to Har Sinai here. On Har Sinai they will accept the Torah. And right after that they will go into Eretz Yisrael. Moshe Rabbeinu does not accept the job. Now you have to understand what's happening here is Moshe Rabbeinu is being offered the greatest level of Kedusha that's ever been offered to a human being. If you've ever known anyone who aspired to greatness... And I didn't mean it in a good sense. If a person understands what life is about and they want to grow and they want to accomplish, 
a person develops a very strong hunger, a real desire for godless, for greatness. If a person learns a Masechta, they, they know what it means to finish a Masechta, they want to finish another one. If they finish two Masechta, they want to finish a third and a fourth, and a person masters half of Shatz, they want to know all of Shatz. It's a natural growth process in a human when they grow and they experience some greatness, they want more. Moshe Rabbeinu was now being offered the greatest opportunity for growth on the planet. He was offered the opportunity to be a Novi Hashem. He's being offered the opportunity to meet with Hashem, literally speak to Hashem on a regular, constant basis. He was being offered to go up to Shemayim and learn the entire Torah from the greatest Rebbe, from Hashem Himself, and Moshe Rabbeinu refused. And Rashi later on explains to us the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu refused was because Moshe Rabbeinu had a brother, Aaron, who was three years older than Moshe. At this point, Moshe is 80, Aaron is 83. And the Novi Hashem, up until this point, had been Aaron. Remember, Amron, their father, was the Galador. And whenever the Kaisal had questions and issues, they turned to Amram. After Amram had died, they turned to the, the sons of Amram. Moshe had left, had been, as a baby, had went to the base power, he was never around. The one left was Aaron. Aaron became the Shliach Hashem, and Aaron became the Galador, and Aaron was the one to who all questions were addressed to. Moshe Rabbeinu was aware of this, and Moshe Rabbeinu said to Hashem, I will not take away that covered from my brother. My brother is the leader of the Jewish nation, my brother is Roy, he is fit to lead the Jewish nation, let him take the Jewish nation out. This discussion between Hashem offering the position to Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu refusing, lasted for seven days. For seven days, Moshe Rabbeinu said no, and Hashem said you should. Not only did Hashem sit there for seven days trying to convince Moshe, every single argument that Moshe presented, even though Moshe didn't really believe them, Hashem refuted. And apparently they went through this whole discussion for seven days, until at the very end, Vayichar Af Hashem, Hashem got angry at Moshe, because it was too much. And there's a machlokas in the Gemara whether in fact there was a punishment for this. According to one man, the Omar Moshe Rabbeinu went too far and was punished. According to another, he wasn't punished. In any case, what Hashem said to Moshe was, you're making a mistake. I know Aaron Akoin, and I recognize the purity of his heart, and he will come to greet you without jealousy, without a bad feeling. He will reach you with, greet you with samach belibo. He will be joyous. He will be happy. Even after this, apparently... Moshe Rabbeinu still didn't accept, but finally, without choice, he took the job, and in fact, the, the Pasuk tells us, Vayira, when in fact Aaron met Moshe Rabbeinu, Vayismach, he was with great joy in his heart, and because of that, he was Zochet to the Urim Vetumim, he was Zochet to become the Kohen Gadol, and wear the, the chest plate on his chest, because of the purity of his heart. Together, Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron Akoin were sent to save the Kaisal to take them out of Mitzrayim. The Pasuk is very clear that Hashem told them, Lech vasafte zikne Yisrael, go gather the zikne Yisrael. All leadership of the Kaisal is done through the Zikanim. The Medrash tells us, Kol Hashol Eitzim and Zikanim, whoever asks Eitzim from Zikanim, from the elders, Zikanim means Tamid Chomim who are older, Eino Nichshel, he will never fail, and in fact, the system over here wasn't that the Moshe Rabbeinu went together with Aaron to Paro. They went to first the Zikanim, to gather the Zikanim, take the Zikanim with you, and together go to, go to Paro. Apparently, what happened in the end was that it was only Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron who actually went to Paro. The Medrash tells us that what happened was the Zikanim 
when Moshe Rabbeinu came to the Zikanim, he showed them the various osos. Hashem gave three simonim to demonstrate to the Klai Yisrael that you are in fact my shliach. The first thing, before even a simon, Hashem gave him the words pakod pakarti. Now there was a mesorah that was given to Yaakov Avinu, and it actually was given to Avram, handed down to Yitzhak, to Yaakov, that when the Mashiach shall Yisrael, when the one to save the Klai Yisrael will come to redeem them from the bondage, you'll use the expression pakod pakarti, remember I remembered. Now that expression was handed down to Serach, the daughter of Levi, who was still alive, and she told the Zikanim that in fact this was the Masorah she had, that Pakod Pakarati is the expression told. Moshe Rabbeinu never heard this. Moshe Rabbeinu as a baby was taken out of the Jewish nation. He lived in the, in the house of Paro. When he came back and said the words Pakod Pakarati, it was accepted as a sign that he, in fact, was to be the Moshiach Israel. He was the son of the Galador. He had obviously very, a very unique stature and, and, and obviously had a very unique history. They knew he was the one who was brought up in the base Paro. He was the one who went to Midian. He was now the one who came back. He said, Pakod Pakarati. But additionally, Hashem gave three simonim. One was the stick, throwing the stick onto the floor, turning to a st- snake. The second was the putting his hand into his cloak pulling it out as saras, putting it back and it not being filled with leprosy. And the third was taking the water from the yar, taking water from the Nile, throwing it on the floor and, turn, and it turning into blood. The Rambam explains to us that when a Novi comes, there are two ways to know if a Novi, to accept a Novi as a Novi Amis. First, the question you ask him is, who has sent you? Oftentimes, the Sheker will say something like, he saw something from a kochav, from a star, from a, from a malach or something. But how you tell if a Novi is a Novi Emes is if he says a Nevuah about the future, that is a good Nevuah, and it turns out to be accurate, meaning he prophesizes. He says such and such an event is going to happen. And it turns out, in fact, to be true, meaning he tells the future. Not something predictable, but something unpredictable. And the other way to tell if a Novi is a Novi Emes is if he does a sign that clearly shows that, he, that there's a control over nature out of the normal realm. These two things is what Moshe Rabbeinu came with. He came with the fact, he came with first Pakot Pakarati, he's saying that Hashem will redeem us, and we'll soon see that was something that was fulfilled. And he also came with these three osos, these three signs, which were clear demonstrations of something out of the natural order, the snake turn, the stick turning into a snake, the, his hand turning leprosy. Leprosy doesn't just mean the skin turns white. It's actually skin flaking. It's a whole manifestation, a change in the, in the whole skin. And the third, the water turning into blood. These simonim were more than enough for the Chachamim to accept his words. And in fact, the Chachamim accepted him as the Moshian, as the sa- Savior of the Klai Yisrael. However, we also know that the Medrash tells us that by the time he and Aaron walked to, into the base paro, he and Moshe, Moshe and Aaron were alone. What happened was, the Canaan heard the Simonim, they accepted Moshe as to be the Shleach Hashem, they gathered together to walk with Moshe and Aaron to the base Paro, and slowly, slowly they started dropping out. So that by the time Moshe and Aaron got to the palace, it was they alone because all of the Chumim had dropped out. And you have to understand the reason for this is, the reason, the reason was that in the, in the Mitzri society, there was one ultimate power, and that was Paro. Paro was a despot who was not a benevolent despot, he was a very, very cruel and powerful king. 
his word was absolute law, and he was ruthless. We know he killed people with, without mercy. He was very, very powerful, and the Chachamim, despite the fact believing in Moshe and Aaron, were terrified. It was a very terrifying experience to walk into the house of Pharaoh because he might very well kill them all. We'll soon see that, in fact, Moshe and Aaron should not have been able to access the king's throne room. There were guards and various animals protecting, and it was only with Nisim Gluyim, with clear, obvious miracles, that they were able to actually go into the base Pharaoh. In any case, along the way, the Chachamim, each one dropped off until it was only Moshe and Aaron. Hashem says, I'll pay you back. In the end, it's going to be, in Harsina, it's only going to be Moshe and Aaron who will come up high, so the Canaan will have to stay back. In any case, Moshe and Aaron were the ones who came, told the Zikinim that they are the ones who are going to save them. And it's very interesting that Hashem says one more thing. When you go to tell the Kleistral that you're going to take them out, also tell them, let them know that they will leave with tremendous wealth. The women will ask from their neighbors, the Klichesev, the Klizahov, the various gold vessels and silver vessels, Usmolos and various begodim, and you will nitsaltimus mitzrayim. You will despoil the Egyptian population. This was a haftacha when Avram said the word yadoa. When Avram asked for a guarantee from Hashem, Hashem promised that your people will leave, your children will leave mitzrayim, and they'll leave berachush gadol. They will leave with great wealth. Hashem wanted this word to be said over to the bnei Yisrael. Before they even left, Hashem wanted them to know that in fact when they leave, they will be given great wealth. In any case, right after this snap, right after this event, this highest level of nevuah that Moshe Rabbeinu reached, before he actually leaves, he goes back to Yisro to ask permission. He had in fact made a shvua to Yisro that he would not leave. And it's a machlokas in the Gemara whether he was obligated still in that shvua or not. But in any case, he goes to Yisro ask permission, and Yisro grants permission, and in that state, he goes out, meets Aaron in the desert. Together with Aaron, they go to the house of Paro, and they're about to tell Paro the message that Hashem sent them to save, to redeem the Jewish nation. Eric Hay begins, after this, Moshe and Aaron came and they said to Paro, Ko Amar Hashem, so said Hashem, Lekei Yisrael, the God of Yisrael, Shalach es Ami, send my nation v'yichoguli b'midbar, and they will celebrate for me in the midbar. Now, after this, what's after, after this? So, the Mepharshim tell us that after Moshe and Aaron showed the Osos and the Mosim to the Klai Yisrael. Not only did Moshe do the Mosim, but Aaron as well, the water into blood, the hand into turning to Saras, and finally the, the stick turning into a snake. After they convinced the Klai Yisrael, and Vayamein, the Klai Yisrael believed and accepted, only then did they proceed to Paro's house, and they said to Paro, Hashem, the God of Israel, said, send my nation, and they will celebrate for me in the Midbar. Now it's interesting to note that throughout the entire time, throughout the ten makos, throughout the entire procedures, never does Moshe say, let the Jewish nation go free. He only asks them constantly and repeatedly, let them go into the midbar, let them go for a three-day walk, let them bring Mizbeach, let them bring a carbon to Hashem. Later on we'll discuss more clearly why it is, but in every situation all Moshe asked was, let them out to the midbar to, to, bring, a, to bring a sacrifice to Hashem. 
who is Hashem? They should listen to His voice. To send Hashem, I do not know Hashem. And also Yisrael, I will not send. They said, Moshe said, Okay, the God of Israel called to us. Let's go three days with Midbar in the desert. And let us sacrifice to Hashem our God. Let's we get afflicted by by either sword or by pestilence, by some uh, by some disease. Now, what's very interesting to notice is the Medrash tells us, and we'll find this oftentimes in Chumash. It's very difficult to read Chumash without the Rishonim, without the Torah Shabbat Peh, because you don't know what's actually going on without the background which the Torah Shabbat Peh provides for us. The Medrash here, both the Medrash Tanchuma and Medrash Rabba, explains us actually what happened is as follows. This day was a very unusual day for Paro. Paro, if you remember, th- we're now standing at one year before the actual Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. Some 200 years before this, the Paro, in front of whom Yosef stood and became the Viceroy, became one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world at the time. When the world went into famine, all the surrounding lands had no produce. Mitzrayim had the seven years of produce that they put away. And during the next seven years of famine, they sold the food to not only the people who lived in Egypt, but all the surrounding areas as well. At which point, Paro bought all of the land in Mitzrayim, and he also acquired great wealth from all the surrounding powers. However, during this time, even though Paro was a very wealthy and powerful king, he was not known as one of the emperors, one of the rulers of the earth. We're now some 200 years later. We're dealing either with the grandson or maybe the great-grandson of the original Paro. And this day that Moshe and Aaron come to visit him was a very unusual day in his life. This was a day that he officially became emperor of the earth. Kozum Doctor, the Medrash says he became the emperor, meaning he became world, he at this point was the, the ruler, the monarch of the earth. This particular day was the anointment ceremony. All of the crown, all of the various rulers or local areas, all came to celebrate Paro's now becoming the emperor of the earth. During the celebrations, there were a number of activities that occurred. First of all, all of the various rulers of all the various locales brought crowns to Paro, each one trying to undo the other. And there was a poetry contest during this, during this affair. The poetry contest, basically, Paro had a gold crown at his side, and the one who offered the best poem was going to be awarded this crown. All, the subject of all the poems was, how great is Paro? And each person came up trying to outdo the other, how great is Paro, how wonderful is Paro, Paro, you're a god, Paro, you created this, Paro, you did that. And in, in, not to be humorous over here, but the reality is they were singing praise of Paro as if he was a god, which he long already had been pretending to be. And each one of them would create these, these poems about the glory, significance, and might of Paro. In the midst of this affair, with all of the glory and all eyes turned to Paro, appear, appear these two majestic, powerful Zikanim, older men. Now, at this point, Moshe is 80, Aaron is 83. Moshe Rabbeinu was described by the Gemara as tall, powerful, a unique human being. You could see the glory of the Shekhinah by looking at him. The man was just a manifestation of greatness. 
Now, the problem was that these two Zikanim should not have been in the palace. The palace was very, very well protected. There were guards on the outside. The Medrash tells us that there was an entire passageway that you had to get through, which involved lions and tigers, different wild animals that you could not pass. And there was no way that these two Zikanim, these two old men, should have been standing there. Yet somehow they appear in front of Paro, and the Shliach comes to Paro and says, Paro, these two Zikanim have come to you. The Medrash tells us that Paro immediately says, okay, where is their crown? No crown. Where is their poem? No poem. And, interestingly enough, they do not even say hello to Paro. They walk over to Paro, and they say, send out the Jewish nation, Shalach Esami. Who sent you? They answer back, Hashem sent us. Hashem sent us with a messenger. We are messengers of Hashem to send out the Jewish people. To which Paro says, so did this uh, Hashem send me a, a crown? No. Did he send me any poem about me? No. Who is this Hashem? Now at this point, he reaches into his book of Avodah and he searches and he asks his assistant, please search for this name of Hashem, and he can't find this Hashem. Now already there's something unique going on here, and he's already a little bit, a little uncomfortable with the with the goings on. At which point he says, "This Hashem, I've never heard of him." So Moshe says, "You never heard of Hashem? Hashem is the one who created Shemayim Varitz. Hashem is the one who created the earth, the heavens, and all that it contains." To which Parah says, "Well, this Hashem is he old or is he young? How many cities has he com- has he conquered? How many nations has he has he vanquished? How many years has he been a king?" To which Moshe answers back. You're not hearing what I'm saying. Hashem created the heavens and the earth. Hashem created the trees. Hashem created the sun. Hashem controls the earth and controls the weather. Hashem created the Nile and created you. At which point the Medrash says, Paro stood up in anger and said, Liar! I made the Nile and I made myself. You're lying. And it's apparent that he actually believed the words that he was saying. In any case, the Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron were clearly not being very successful in their attempt to get Paro to let the Jewish nation go. But they told him these words, <clears throat> we are representative of Hashem, and Hashem said you should let the Jewish people go, and if you do not let the Jewish people go, pen we will be afflicted with, with pestilence, with disease, we may be killed out. Now it's very interesting to note, and that Rashi says that they actually changed the language that Hashem said to them. Hashem told them, you tell Paro that if he doesn't let the Jewish people go, he is going to be afflicted with pestilence, with Dever Becherev. He is going to be killed out. But they changed the Lushan, and Rashi says over here, because they they wanted to treat the king with respect. It's not respectful to threaten the king to his face. They spoke, but they were covered, implying, it was an implied threat, meaning you have to let the Jewish people go, lest we be killed out, lest we be tortured. But the point was well made that it meant to Paro, said in a respectful manner. In any case, they leave the palace, <clears throat> and Paro does not listen to them. Not only doesn't he listen to them, he says, Lama ami masav, Why are you stopping the nation from doing its work? Now let's keep in mind, at this point, at Harsinai, there are 600,000 men 
between the age of 20 and 60. We're very close. We're within one year of Harsinai. So we're talking that there are roughly 500,000 men in the workforce. Remember, Shevet Levi was not a member, did not work. The reason why they didn't work is because during the original decree, when Paro came out with the brick around his neck, and he said all have to join in the work for the good of Mitzrayim, the Levium said we are going to be the future carriers of the workers for Hashem. It's not appropriate for, for us to work for a Russia. They didn't do any work. So while everyone did whatever work they did, the Nogshim wrote down the amount that they had done, and each day their tax was to keep up that amount. But since Shevet Levi did not do any work the first day, Shevet Levi were never taxed, and they were free. Even though they were slaves in the sense that they had to remain in Mitzrayim, they were never worked. In fact, Rashi comments, how is it that Moshe and Aaron freely went back and forth to the palace? Because they were from Shevet Levi, they didn't work. In any case, though, if there were 600,000 men, if we take back the amount of Shevet Levi, 50,000, and we take back also the Shotrim, the Shotrim being the guards who actually made the Jewish people, Jews who actually stood over the Jews to work, you have a workforce of approximately 500,000 men. Now, you have to understand, at this time, I don't know the exact population of Mitzrayim, but it's a phenomenal and significant workforce in terms of its economic and financial benefit. If you have 500,000 men who at any given time you can assign to any job, any task, there's a tremendous, tremendous shocha, tremendous bribery not to, to want to let them go. In any case, Paro says, Lama am mimasav, why are you stopping the nation from its work? You, Moshe Aaron, go out. Go back to your, to your own work. Your nation is many. Why are you stopping them from their hard work? That day, Paro commanded the Nogshim who were in charge of the nation. And it showed him. Now, keep in mind, we learned last time that there was a system of control, that there was a Mitzri Nogesh and the Jewish Shotrim. The way it worked was one Jewish Shoter was responsible for 10 Jewish workmen. One shoter, Jewish man, to be responsible for the work of 10 Jewish men. One nogesh, one Egyptian taskmaster, for every 10 shotrim. So for every nogesh, he oversaw 10 shotrim. The 10 shotrim oversaw 10 individual Jews. So basically, if you had 500,000 men, you then had approximately 50,000 Shotrim, who were Jewish men who were in charge of theirs, and 5,000 Nogshim, which meant you had an entire army, you had an entire army of laborers, you had an entire army of management, and you had an entire army on top of them of the Nogshim, which were the, the Gestapo, I guess you would call them, the ones who were actually responsible to make sure the Jews did their work. Paro clearly commanded the Nogshim as follows, Do not any longer give straw to the nation, to break the bricks, as we did yesterday and the day before, Let them gather their own straw. Meaning, the job of the Jews primarily was to build up the land of Egypt. They were involved in the buildings. I don't know if now the that which we see now left over from the ancient Egypt. I don't know how much of that was built with Jewish blood. The pyramids still stand. It's hard to know. But the reality was that at that point, the primary work of the Jews 
Well, a lot of it was to work in the fields, a lot of it was to, to bring in the cattle, but the primary work was to actually build up physically the land and the various cities. During, up until this point, the cash, the straw for the bricks, was given by Paro. That means it was brought from the Otsar of Paro, from the treasure house of Paro. He was responsible for that. The Jews just did the labor. Now Paro basically saw that the nation is starting to rebel. And with great wisdom, he said, if I'm going to allow them time to plot, then they will rebel. What he did was he planned out to make sure that they had no time to think, no time to plan, no time to plot a rebellion. The way he accomplished it was by doubling the amount of work they had to do. Up until now, all they had to do was take the straw and, and bake it into bricks. Now he told them, you collect it on your own. And in fact, he says, make heavy the work on the men, and they won't listen to these lies that, that are being told. The Medrash tells us that it actually got even worse than that because the Jewish men now had the same amount of bricks that they had to bake. They would go into the various fields to gather straw, and the Egyptians, whether they were nokshim or just regular Egyptians, would beat them, get out of my field, what are you taking my straw for? And even if it was a area that was hefker, even if it was straw that wasn't needed, the Egyptians did whatever they could to prevent the Jews from actually being successful in their tasks. So the taskmasters were very demanding that the same work flow continue. The Jews were extremely hampered in their position. Obviously, they weren't being successful. In any case, the nation began feeling the tremendous pain. And it's interesting that the Shotrim were given great credit for what they did. At this point, the Nogshim would beat the Shotrim because the Jewish people were not providing the amount of bricks and not doing the work that they should have. The Shotrim did not then turn to, the Jewish, to their Jewish brothers and hit them. Really, normally that's what happens. If you remember, unfortunately, during the, during the time of the Holocaust, there were unfortunately very, very sad tales of kapos who were Jewish, Jewish inmates who were given power by the Nazis to be responsible for the bunk. And oftentimes the kapos were worse than the Nazis. They just became, the Nazis would only pick people who were particularly malicious or had a really bad streak in them. And the reality is, you read some of the Holocaust material, you see sometimes the Kapos were as bad and maybe even worse than the Nazis. But apparently during this time, that wasn't at all what happened. The Shotrim remained loyal, and they did not beat the Jewish people, and they were accepting the brunt of the, of the beatings. Now, the Pasuk tells us that one, at one point, these Shotrim went to power to complain. Now, apparently, two of the Shotrim, who we know as Dalsam Vaviram, were high-ranking Shotrim. Now, they were not good Jews, but they were in charge of the Shotrim, and apparently they were not, in that sense, at this point, they weren't Rishayim. In any case, they went together with the entire contingents of the Shotrim to complain to power. Their complaint was very simple. It's impossible. We're not able to do the, the work that you're asking us to do.